I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Let's start here where I think the answer begins for everything and everybody in the place of acknowledgement. Indigenous peoples in this country have taught me the most about what acknowledgement truly means. So everything that I've created for you happened here on Treaty 7 land, which is now known as the center part of the province of Alberta. It is home to the Blackfoot Confederacy, made up of the Siksika, the Kainai, the Pikani, the Tatina First Nation, the Stony Nakoda First Nation, and the Métis Nation Region 3. It is always my honor, my privilege mostly, to raise my babies on this land where so much sacrifice was made. And to build a community, invite a community in, talk about hard things as we together learn and unlearn about the most important things, that we were never meant to do any of this alone. Welcome in, welcome back. Dr. Jody Carrington here and uh, the Everyone Comes From Somewhere podcast. Today, I got to tell you, I um, sometimes we get to meet people who have done the most incredible things on the planet and this may be one of the finest humans uh, I've ever got the pleasure of, of reading about and I've just met him and I can't wait for you to do that too. His name is Dr. Jeremy Nobel, and he is a primary care physician, public health practitioner, an award-winning poet with faculty appointments at the Harvard T.C. Chan School of Public Health and the Harvard Medical School. He is the founder and president of the Foundation for Heart Art and Healing, whose signature initiative, which I am so fascinated to learn a little bit more about, is Project Unlonely, addressing the personal and public health challenges of loneliness and social isolation. He has gained national vis- visibility for his amazing work, and he is here with us today. Sir, I cannot tell you. I This is the Everyone Comes From Somewhere podcast, and I think that we are all way more alike than we are different. And the answer to sort of the prerequisite for empathy is context. And we've never been more disconnected in this moment, not knowing everybody's context, their story. And I, I want to know a little bit about yours. Where... Uh, did you come from? Well, first, what a, what a generous and wonderful introduction, Jody, and I'm I'm just delighted to be here. Uh, that and but I also always start these podcasts by saying there are many people who may be listening for whom loneliness is not just a passing sensation, a little bit of a twinge, but a deep and very dark experience. And if you find yourself in that experience, I just want you to know you're not alone. There are things you can do about loneliness. There are ways to reach out and get help. And if that's the situation you're in, I urge you to do that. Mm. 
I love that. I love it's. I mean, I speak about this all the time. Dr. Vivek Murphy, uh, the, the, talking about the loneliness epidemic uh, in your country and ours, um, because you're in New York today. Is that right? I'm in New York today, but you asked where I come from. I love that question because I we all come know from a all. lot of places. I, I, um, I actually was born in New Jersey, but when I was seven years old, my father decided um, it was kind of a bold move in his generation. He would pursue higher education and he had uh, and get a Ph.D. in chemistry, which led to his taking our then young family. I was the youngest of three. I was seven. I had and still have fortunately have uh, a uh, two sisters, one two years older, one four years older. He, you know, bundled us all up. We moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Wow. Uh, where for a variety of reasons, even though I haven't actually lived there in almost 50 years, I still feel it's my home and where I'm really? from. It's certainly where I'm from. Yeah. And it and uh, and and place and homes shape how we make sense of the world. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel very proud to and um, just grateful to have grown up in that community and um, and really um just so intrigued that that's one of the themes of your podcast. Yeah. And I, you know, it's, it's a question that I ask everybody when we start. And you know, what is so interesting to me as a psychologist is every time I start with that question, everybody answers it so differently. You know, I, do I come from my community, from my parents? What is my, do we speak about the lineage? And so the youngest of three, the baby boy, uh, how, tell me a little bit about that growing up story. I mean, I, I love that you say our context, our, home, where we come from, it just defines us so much, doesn't it? It does define us. And and, and in looking back at the home I was fortunate to grow up in, you know, it was just so filled, um, you know, not not with, you know, kind of wealth in the conventional sense, but Mm -hmm. love, caring, curiosity. Mm -hmm. Both my parents um, were were very curious. They both became scientists. They were chemists. They met in a chemistry laboratory, got married six weeks later. It was right after World War II. My father had come back from World War II. My mother literally was Rosie the Riveter. She had worked in a, in a she worked for uh, welding on tail hooks of Hellcat, Hellcat fighter planes. These were these short, stubby little planes that would land on carriers, mostly in the Pacific. And yes. if you didn't have that, that tail hook welded on right, uh, and grabbed the cable. You were you were in the Pacific, and so she took that job very seriously. I bet she did. My goodness, uh, amazing! And I love that six week romance. I mean, I, I you know, I, as I know you sort of sink into with your patients, no doubt, and the students that you teach. Really, this idea of people always ask me, you know, does it always come back to your childhood? And I and I say this all the yes. I'm sorry, but it yeah. does. It doesn't mean it defines you moving forward, but understanding that context allows you uh, a little insight into how you see people, uh, how they treat you, what what sort of that story is about how you're going to be treated in this world. Is that is that sort of true? And how does that play into loneliness, do you think? I think it is true, you know, and we are in many ways shaped by our early circumstances. There's increasing evidence of that. I do write in my book about something I'm sure you've heard of, maybe the readers also so-called adverse childhood events, oh, right? A very kind of... Vince Felitti <laughs> sets the tone. Yes. Yeah, yes. very abstract tone, but for people listening. So, you know, there are 20 of them, I think, that are recognized. And some of them are relatively mild, uh, in, in a sense, unless it's happening to you, of course. Mm-hmm. Like if you have divorced parents or someone, but having a, a parent die when you're young, an incarcerated parent, um, you know, kind of a substance abuse problem in the home. So all of this leads to a kind of fragility the child has as he or she or they develop and and their sense of re- can they rely on the world around them 
Mm-hmm. And if and if you and if you're not sure about that, then you're always walking on eggshells. And whether that you know kind of exactly the kind of um, impact that has on your developing psyche, your ability to t- attach to other people in trusting and and sustainable ways, that shapes in many ways your ability to connect, have meaningful, sustainable relationships, or whether you you find those um, um, hard elusive or in the worst cases, terrifying and and, and yes. have a very lonely life. Yeah. And so when you think about it, and I th- uh, like with children, kids these days, that's the title of my first book. It's called Kids These Days. When we really talk about their, our understanding of learning trust and relationship is, is, has a lot to do with proximity, has a lot to do with connection. And I think, you know, I was reading some data not very long ago that, you know, our great grandparents, it's estimated that they spent 72% more of the time looking at their children than, than we look at our kids today. How does that play into this idea of, you know, developing that story of, of how big people navigate the world with us, who, how, how we reach out to people, the nuances of asking for help or connection? Is that what you see? I mean, in, in, in this book of yours, as we start to talk a lot about this process of loneliness. Yeah. Sure. And and let me be, you know, be clear to you in the audience. I'm not a psychologist, so I I don't have that formal training as you and other others have or a psychiatrist. I'm a a primary care physician. So I've had basic, you know, education about, you know, kind of, um, you know, mental processes, how the brain works and so on. But, you know, I've been doing this this work now um, for almost 20 years, uh, looking at ways to connect people through creative arts. We'll talk more about that. And I'll have to say that much of what I've seen is stuff and, and it's things that when I explain it to people makes perfect sense because almost all of us, you know, from very early ages are eager to connect. Kids want to mm-hmm. connect. Sometimes mm-hmm. you run into barriers and obstacles. Sometimes they're they're functional kind of things or, or situational. Sometimes they're emotional. We de- And we navigate them as best we can. We develop styles and habits and areas where uh, we have some talents and areas where we fall short and all of this just is what we bring with us as we as we eager to have the human connections that are meaningful authentic and can be sustained oh i love that so when you leave your town when you leave this community that you were raised in uh how do we make the decision you know in your own story that caring for other people was going to be part of the script how uh how, how i mean you spend a lot of time with people who are lonely, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, what is that? How did that come together for you? You know, I it's all about story, right? And I share a very personal story in my in in the book. Um, you know, uh, I was lucky to have a wonderful, warm, loving, caring family, but like other families, sometimes things happen, and one of those was, in retrospect, and even at the time, tragic. Which was my father died at a young age. I discovered him dying of a heart attack as I was coming down stairs from for school one morning. He was in the living room, and he didn't survive that day. Oh. And what I'll never forget was the feeling, the emotion I had. No, it took me years to understand it, but I actually felt embarrassed. And I thought, why am I embarrassed? And I actually as I put it together, I felt that I had let him down, that he died on my watch. I think it's sometimes the way kids feel if their parents divorce and they think it's their fault. Oh, so common, isn't it? Yeah. And so that, that feeling that, um, of, of guilt, shame, inadequacy, um, I think unconsciously shaped my decision ultimately 
to go into a field where I could help people. And, you know, I've had some, I'm pretty sure there, that was at least one of, one of the things, but I mean, we all have our personal stories. I mean, in some ways, what I just shared with you might sound dramatic and it certainly shaped my life, but we all have these stories. It's not, it's not only where do we come from? It's like what happens to us on the, on the journey. Oh, isn't that true? And I, I, I love that. I mean, it is all of these experiences that shape us that that become so profound. And I love the insight into that, you know, what that little boy must have felt like not being able to save his dad in that moment and what that did in terms of, OK, this is now maybe what I can do to help other people um, is is so often, you know, that I love about speaking to patients about, OK, so help me understand how you made sense of that in that moment. Right. How you yeah. because then as you grow up, you, of course, think about things very different. But that little boy still thinks about the things in that way. Yeah. Well, I think that's that's right. I mean, we we in our minds, we still are all the people we've ever been. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Right. Where could they go? They're yeah. in there. They're fed up. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's so okay. So tell me a little bit about this then. As you sort of step in uh to your medical training, um, was primary care always where you wanted to be? Interestingly, both my parents, as I mentioned, were scientists, and I really wasn't sure what I was going to do. And so I, I kind of thought I would end up in science. And I was always very curious about science. I mean, I also tell the story in the book. I was seven years old, and I got this little um, kind of electric toy circuitry kit. Yeah. And I, I just got so interested in it that even while the battery was running down, I was like trying to like say, okay, well, you know, if I wire it up this way, the two light bulbs are the same. Um yeah intensity, brightness. And if I wire it up and differently, they're only half that intensity. What's going on? And so as the battery ran down, I, I said, oh, I got to go someplace dark. So I ended up going into my closet. <laughs> I remember this and this kind of doing these experiments over yeah. and over as a seven-year-old. <laughs> and I think this curiosity, I was very mm -hmm. lucky to not only ha have it, but to have that nurtured. And that took me towards science. It still drives me today. I, I actually think it, it can be a wonderful resource for all of us if we listen to what our curiosity takes. But so I originally started in medical school um, thinking I would go in the MD-PhD program in immunology, that I would be, Ooh. you know, a scientist and discover that. But in the in, on the path to that, I started having clinical rotations and decided that the experience and kind of excitement and challenge of um, illness diagnosis and treatment was more compelling. And so I uh, moved in that direction and and studied internal medicine. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, in practice for about 10 years, but I also then became interested in the bigger, bigger kind of challenge of not just an individual disease, but then how do you understand the source and cause of disease? How do you prevent it? And how do you make sure once people has it, once a person has a need that they get what they need to have that address? So that took me, I didn't know it at the time, but that took me towards public health. Yes. And so I've, I've had a kind of one foot in the public health world, one foot in the medical world. I think, you know, for a long time now, and I see they're both fantastically interesting careers, uh, very rewarding, yep. very challenging. Um, yep. But I think that that all got started, I think, through curiosity. Oh my God. And then were you trained at Harvard or how do we get in? How did you get the Harvard track? Because I mean, up here in Canada, you say the word Harvard and all of us are like that. You are amazing. Clearly. <laughs> well, um, 
I, I was very fortunate. There's wonderful teachers, mentors. And then, of course, you learn the most, I think, in many ways from your fellow students. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't go to medical school at Harvard. I went to the University of Pennsylvania, also an excellent school. Yes, but indeed. then what you do in internal medicine is you go train, it's called training, internship, residency, and so on at a health system that's often associated with a major academic center. Yeah. And so I did my internal medicine training at one of the Harvard teaching hospitals and then continued to work there. And then when I decided I wanted public health training, I actually just went across the street to the Harvard School of Public Health to get additional training in public health. Oh, so cool. All right. And then... How do we, at the same time as you're doing all this training, then what's, what's happening? Do you, are, are you settling down now in this community? Do you, yeah. you know, what's your family story? Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I loved Boston. I still live in Boston. Um, and so, you know, I began to kind of navigate, you know, kind of the, the world of relationships and so on. And I, you know, I, I met, you know, a very wonderful woman. We, we, you know, we lived together, but then it didn't quite work out. And so, um, you know, we parted ways. Um, and, but then, when, you know, I really, and I think this really comes down in, in ways to my own loneliness. I wasn't really ready to deal with some of the challenges of intimacy. I, I wanted it. I, I thought about it. Um, but, um, for a variety of reasons, it was kind of beyond my reach really. Um, now the one nice thing in a way, at least in her culture is, workaholism, which is what I did to distract myself from loneliness, <laughs> yeah. is always available to us. Yes, <laughs> isn't so, it? It's so lovely. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I love what I do, I, you know, and I certainly did then and still do. Um, but I, that became really a primary force in my life for a number of years. And, mm. you know, and, and while I, I did have some wonderful um, kind of shorter term relationships, I never found that, you know, that that partnership that around which you could build a family and so on, nor did did I even think it was possible for me, actually. I mean, this was all going on somewhat unconsciously. You know, I just thought, well, I guess that's for other people. My job is to work. Yeah. Here's where I got to be. Wow. And sorry, keep going. No, and just say, you know, I feel fortunate I had, I had that as you're well aware as a psychologist, they're there are other ways people distract themselves that are a little less healthy. Yeah, exactly. That's feeling right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so that that was not an issue. But that's but you know, the nice thing about life is it continues. And if you stay curious and pay attention, you begin to learn things and then other opportunities do appear. Present themselves. Isn't that so true? And as you then stepped into this world, like I, you know, I what I loved even before we turned the the tapes on today is you said, you know, I I, I now teach a course on loneliness that started before the pandemic. How has this experience, this global experience, expedited this, the concern, if it has, yeah. around loneliness? And, you know, what do you, what do you see in, in that world? Yeah, I think there are a variety of, first of all, let's just be clear what loneliness is versus yes, being alone. You, you know, you. many people still find that confusing, yeah. understandably, because they almost have the same word in them. So being alone is the objective state of no social contacts, right? You can just count the social contacts. Do you connect with people and so on? Or are you isolated? So social isolation, it's objective. It's measurable. Yeah. It, you know, you can see it. Um, and But it can also be quite a positive experience, right? If you use that alone time to be thoughtful about who you are, what matters to you, how do you design a life with meaning and purpose? How do you enjoy nature, stillness, all things? 
In fact, you know, it's such an important state. We have a high class word for it. We call it solitude. Yeah, that is very sexy. I love that. I could have some <laughs> solitude. But I love that you say that, like a lonely and being alone, two very different things. And I think in this busy world, it's almost like it has become something we identify as an ep- epidemic, but it's also so necessary with the noise and inundation of social yeah. media, the ease to be able to do that. So I, I love that differentiation. Yeah. So loneliness, different from being alone. So being alone is just being isolated, no one around. Often by choice, if no choice, then it can be toxic, you know, so it's not sometimes social isolation can be, you know, health impairing also. But loneliness is a very different thing. It's a, Mm -hmm. it's not an illness or a disease. It's a mood. It's an emotion. It's a feeling that there's a kind of social connection to others that we want that we don't have. So it's the gap, right? So imagine the social connections you desire, dream about, right? And then what you think you have, what you feel you have access to every day. And that gap is what we call loneliness. It's always the sense that something is missing. Ah, and you know, I've read in, in your work as well, it's really this idea that it, that it's almost more than a feeling because it can certainly affect not only your mental health, but your physical health. There's a lot of connections between that yeah. one emotion, isn't there? Well, we, we know emotion changes our, our both our mental and physical health. Look at what stress does. Same thing. Stress is not an illness. It's a brain state. It's marked by certain brain changes and then um, mood and attitude changes and then behavior changes. But like <clears throat> loneliness, um, it can spiral out of control and be very harmful. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most important things I discovered in learning about loneliness is we're all lonely from time to time. It's it's pro- this desire you want, you know, human connection may be the most human emotion we have. And it's yeah. a signal. It's yeah. a signal that may have evolved evolutionarily from, time, you know, earlier times when if there weren't people in your tribe, people looking out for you, you were seriously at risk in, yeah. in a, a dangerous environment to a feeling now that, um, you know, that there's something wrong with us if, if we don't have human content, that we're flawed. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I suggest, and, um, you know, I, I'm working on this too, it's not always easy, is that we view loneliness as a signal that we need human connection. Just like thirst is a signal we need hydration. Yeah. I, I you know, and then you use that as a signal to to navigate it, not say, oh, I'm broken or flawed, but just say, oh, there's something I need. How do I get it? Yeah. Now, unlike thirst, so we don't, you know, when when people are thirsty, they don't get ashamed of being thirsty. They figure out how to get just, something to drink. Yes. And the question is, why are we so ashamed of being lonely in our culture? Yeah. And it's a cultural construction. And there's probably a lot of roots to it. Um, but, you know, I, I think... It's just unnecessary to feel that if you're lonely and and misleading to think if you're lonely, it's your fault. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Do, do you think there's a skill involved in creating relationship? I mean, this is the thing that I wonder about with my own kids. So I have two, I have a set of twins that are 10 and our oldest is 13. And I think about the ability to develop skills to sort of mitigate loneliness, which is, you know, how do you initiate a conversation in a uh, elevator? How do you wave at somebody on the street? How do you do these things? Those are not the skills that kids are born with, right? You have to watch somebody, somebody to show you how to do that. And the less and less we interact with people, I'm not even sure if this data is true, but the less and less we interact with data, with, with people, right? We're not showing our kids how to do it. We order our groceries in. We don't go out. We don't have fights. And, you know, our kids are supposed to lose their friggin' minds in a shopping center, but we just, we just order it up from Amazon now. So we don't like, are, is there also one of the contributors to loneliness? I'm wondering in my head is this ability or lack thereof of sort of showing uh, the next generation, how to navigate the nuances of engaging in relationships. I think that's absolutely at the heart of it. And I think that's one of the reasons why recent research has showed that the loneliest demographic for adults is 18 to 24. That's after a decade of being on on cell phones, on smartphones, because part of what happens when you remove yourself from the messiness of human interaction, right? Yeah. Because people are complicated, right? And it, and if you have to navigate kind of a traditional Non, non-electronic community, right? Not something you put together on uh, in Instagram or on a platform. Then you have to deal with the um, challenges of just very different people with different demands. You have to learn patience. You have yeah. to learn tolerance. Otherwise, you just can't make it work. Yeah. Well, if you don't have patience and tolerance, then it's very hard to do anything other than retreat <laughs> if you deal with a challenging social situation and you find increasingly um, that's what people do into these carefully curated digital communities that they put together. If there's discomfort or someone they don't feel comfortable with, they delete them. They edit them out. Gosh. And what do you see? I mean, as you sort of notice this now and, you know, with your research and I know, you know, I can't wait to dive even more into your book, but what do we think about? What are our fears for the next generation? Right. Do you think this is something that we can mitigate? What what do we need to be doing as as parents, as educators to be able to sort of instill, insert some of the things that our kids are going to need? Well, we're already seeing very worrisome trends, you know, among the younger generation, a recent Center for Disease report that came out said that levels of persistent sadness and hopelessness in teenage girls is now 60%. Three out of five are persistently sad or hopeless. That's twice what it was 10 years ago. What? Twice in a decade? Twice twice in a decade. And we know that um, anxiety, depression, um, uh, addiction, and, and, you know, overuse of toxic substances and suicidality is also up. Mm-hmm. In, in mm-hmm. both, um, you know, teenage boys and girls and young adults. And so there's a price we're paying <laughs> for this loneliness. And, you know, I think it's clearly, clearly related. Now, the question is, what do we do about it? You know, so the goal of Project on Lonely, which arose out of our work at the Foundation for Art and Healing, is to do three things, One, three goals. So first is to increase awareness about loneliness and how bad it is for both your physical, mental, and social health, because a lot of people just don't know that. Yeah. And in fact, 
we didn't even know. We, we knew about the mental health challenges for a few decades. That doesn't surprise anyone. The risk for uh, anxiety, depression, addiction, and yeah. suicidality. Okay. But loneliness also increases risk for heart attack and stroke by and death from either by 30%, increases risk of dementia by 40%, diabetes by 50%. Wow. Because loneliness is a brain state also increases inflammation. It reduces immune system function. So it actually reduces life, you know, or it increases the risk of dying early by about 30%. So this is one of the reasons why it is a public health urgency. Yeah, it's we not just a loneliness. Right. Yes. So that's the first thing is awareness. That's okay. the first goal of the foundation or the project on lonely. The second yeah. is to address the stigma that surrounds it. People do not want to, particularly young people, they do not want to say, I'm lonely out loud. Now, it's where, and as a psychologist, you may be aware of this, you know, it's where depression was not too long ago. Now, it's not where it needs to be, but people feel much more comfortable saying I'm depressed and asking for help. So, so we know we know we can get through stigma. There are strategies to do it. You have to normalize it. You just have to make it part of the uh, of the cultural narrative. To recognize loneliness. So that's the second goal. The third is to do something about it, <laughs> to make available creative arts and mindfulness-based programs that we we design and test. We don't deliver it. We're not a service organization, but we make them available to community, a wide variety of community-based organizations that they could use it for the people and populations they serve. Wow. So community centers, faith-based groups, museums, libraries, uh, sometimes healthcare places, employers, um, higher education. So they make so they have tools and experiences they can offer people so they can be better connected. So why expressive arts? Because this feels so unscientific in so many ways. Yeah. Why? What, what's tell me the research about this? Where, where we're giving people a place? Because I I mean. Anyway, you tell me because I just looked at everything on the website and I was like, wow, that's for particularly with those with the trauma history. I just think, yes, this is where we need to be. Well, interestingly, a lot of our knowledge about uh, how the arts can connect people came out of our work on using the arts for trauma. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And 20 years ago, when I started the Foundation for Art and Healing, the research around the arts was just getting started. There was empirical research. Art therapy had already been around. That wasn't new. Mm -hmm. But what was going on in the brain when you did creative work or what goes on in the brain when you behold the creative work of others, they, they were just starting to have the functional MRI scan technologies and the other modalities that could allow us to do that level of brain research. Yeah. What we found, this is fascinating, is that the arts do some amazing things to our brains. So I'll start with that because that's really at the basis of really how it then changes mood and then um, changes behavior. Okay. So we've known for a while now that the arts uh, reduce the, the levels of the stress hormone cortisol. Mm -hmm. And not just making art, but receiving art from other people. Our stress levels go down. It's fantastic. But that doesn't surprise people because they have the experience of listening to music or visual arts or Dance. And so it could be any art. Is that what, like how would we define art? It, uh, anything does, that that anything that that um, touches the creative imagination. Okay. And so, so drawing, painting, music, dance, any of those things fits into this category. Yes, and so those are the traditional high arts, right? So yeah. music, movement, visual art, 
and language arts, poetry, novels, and so on. But we use our creative imaginations in daily life in other ways, right? So culinary arts, right? You know, even like the color, the shape, you know, when you're chopping a salad, all these, you know, you're making, continually making and, and creating. Now, obviously, sometimes you're in production mode for food. I understand that. I've been yeah. there too, but it's also an opportunity for creative making. Um, the textile arts, knitting, sewing, crocheting, quilting, which is all storytelling for many really? people. Um, yeah. These have been around for centuries. And then one of my favorites is gardening, you know. Uh, which a friend of mine calls the world's slowest performance art. <laughs> That's so true. I love that. I've never, th- you know, so many people just speak about that, right? Where you just go and watch something produce. It's yeah. just so healing. So, okay. So tell me, wow. Yeah. So that, so we've learned that, that the arts have that, you know, kind of remarkable effect. They reduce the stress level cortisol, but they also increase the so-called feel-good hormones, serotonin, dopamine, endorphins, and oxytocin. So at the very start, the arts relax you and put you in a good mood, which is a pretty nice way to connect. Yes. But recently, there's even more provocative studies that when you engage with the arts, it actually stimulates the part of your brain that makes sense of your social environment and whether people around you are um, opportunities or threats, right? And the more we think about the people around us as opportunities, this is empathy, this is compassion and leads to connection. So the arts are more powerful than just turning up and down stress. They actually change our social cognition in some very positive ways. Well, and I would imagine often like it pulls on your prefrontal cortex. And so we, we talk a lot about emotional dysregulation around here. And so are we engaging in things on purpose that then center us back in our bodies and engagement with other people? Right. And I love, I love this idea. And so tell me a little bit more about Project Unlonely then. Is it really, I mean, I know the book is phenomenal. Is it really then just, as you say, making uh, resources, programs available? Like what is the initiative? Yeah, almost all of our programs interthread three modalities, all of which have very, very well-established research bases and evidence base. So the first one is mindfulness. So what mindfulness does just takes you right to awareness. And there are lots of ways almost anyone can tap into a heightened set of awareness, everything from breathing exercises to visualization. You know, so almost all of our making activities, we start with some mindfulness to calm people down center them in the activity and so on. Then we uh, we offer them a prompt and say, get curious about this prompt and then make something. And then here's the other, the third of the three uh, modalities, social, emotional learning, social learning to have a conversation, a meaningful conversation about what you made, uh, how you felt before you made it, what you now feel after having made it, and use it as a catalyst to share your story. Mm-hmm. And I think we talked about it earlier. Stories are how we make sense of the world. It's how we make sense of ourselves. And it's actually how we connect. We we connect through our, our, our storytelling. And, and that's kind of, if there's magic in what we do, uh, it's those three things. Pure, be curious, make things, have conversations. Wow. And that sort of loop of tying it together, I would imagine, is also important. Uh, at some neurological level, hey, like not only just to sort of create things, but yep. what does it mean to you? And being able to even verbalize that, I guess, you know, w- or explain it in some way, then increases the connection inherently. Absolutely. And, and the one thing that people are often, oh, I'm not an artist. I'm not, 
it's the it's the act of expressing exercises parts of our brain still mapping out what they are but you know the part that gets exercised when you imagine something then when you think about making something and then when you have to come up with meaning and use the language center of your brain to talk about it and then um and when you talk about you know the skills we need to have one thing that people really need in fact, to connect is you have to disclose something important and authentic about yourself. Mm. Well, that that sounds great, except then people say, well, what if what if I become vulnerable and then I get rejected and I get hurt? Judged. Yes. Yeah. Judged. Right. So it's like part of part of this practice is to build the muscle that allows us to tolerate the discomfort of disclosure. Oh, I love that because I think it it is so much, you know, that I think we get confused about so many times is that we're not born with these skills, right? So even when, you know, to be able to to softly criticize another, to have empathy for another, none of those things that, we're, you know, we're born with. And I, I, I love, you know, speaking with, with teachers often, you know, when, they, when we think about, well, this kid has no empathy, this kid doesn't know. This is our, our ability to be able to teach them, to show them. Uh, means that they have to experience. There's no probably, I don't know, replacement for experience. And when you want to get creative, I guess this is, you've got to practice it. That's right. That's right. And so that, so we built that methodology. Now, what's really important in public health is to recognize that while a little bit of loneliness could be a signal like thirst, when it starts to get excessive, it can spiral out of control. So in, in the book, I identify five territories of human experience where you're very much at risk for, for spiraling loneliness so we can be aware of it when it's happening to ourselves yep. and get the connections we need, but also keep an eye on friends, neighbors, and family okay. and see how they're doing. And then to the extent we can, let's change our, our social norms so it's accessible to everyone. Here are the five territories. The first one, and we talked about it already, is the territory of trauma. And there are lots of kinds of trauma in the world. So we, we, we've done things with military trauma, but there's also domestic violence. There's having your house destroyed by a storm, but there's also other kinds of trauma, um, you know, and so anything that causes significant and sustained injury tends to make your brain tells you withdraw. So as you withdraw, then you start becoming more disconnected from the people around you because of that loneliness. Our brains become more impulsive, more fear driven, more irrational. You withdraw even further. This is why I call it a spiral. Okay. I love that. Yeah. It feeds upon itself. I mean, just like the fundamental basis of anxiety, right? I I can't do this. The less, the more I don't do it, the more I don't want to do it. And the more I fear that I don't have the skill to do it. Yeah. So spiraling is pretty common in in biologic systems. And that's another one. So that's, so that's trauma. Many people, sometimes some more dramatic than others. So, you know, having my father die in, you know, in front of me definitely was traumatic and it had changed the way I felt about myself and that led to other, other kind of things. So it's very common. The fact that we're in any of these territories is just human experience. So that's the first one. Okay. The second one is illness. So particularly serious illness like cancer or some neurologic defects uh, or illnesses or um, chronic illness, serious chronic illness, you know, these change, we feel we're different from other people because we are. And if they're serious illnesses, we often start thinking about mortality and, you know, 
the, did my life matter? And did my life have consequence? And sometimes if you don't like the answers to those internal questions, you feel guilty, ashamed, withdrew. Uh, you know, so this is, illness is its own territory and risk for spiraling. Now, you don't have to. You can get the kind of support you need in illness, be connected. I have friends who, with serious illness, who inspire me mm-hmm. with their mm-hmm. how connected they are. Um, I talk, I give positive stories too. This is not all these, this book is not a gloomy book in any way. <laughs> I um, know it's amazing. Yes. Right. Yeah. So that's the second, the third, okay. the third uh, territory, which I think most people often are aware of because it's part of our, our kind of cultural, um, you know, understanding wellness is aging. As you get older, you lose friends, you lose physical and mental capability is you, um, you become more isolated. So not just lonely, but also isolated. So aging um, is a, is a zone where we have to be careful about spiraling. Okay. Uh, The fourth territory is difference. Are we different because of race? Are we different because of gender um, identity, LGBTQ um, kinds of identity? Uh, And then, and do people see me and accept me for who I am? But it's also just, Disabilities. It's also being a new immigrant uh, or a new asylum seeker into a country. You know, there's a risk that other people, you know, won't really let you in, that you'll be yeah. systematically excluded because of a superficial trait or characteristic. So this is the world of difference. Okay. So marginalization and, in, in many ways would fit. In, yes, very much that so. Category. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you can have marginalization and illness, right? There's certain illness, you know, when AIDS, AIDS was more prominent. AIDS was marginalized, right? And uh, long COVID is, you know, is, is often marginalized because people um, sometimes think, oh, well, you don't have a real disease. It's all in your head. You know, it's a little bit like oh. fibromyalgia. I was so just going to say that, fibromyalgia. Yeah. Yeah, yeah those similar. things where you're on the outside and people are questioning whether that's really a thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I got I it. And the fifth territory, which we're all in right now, is modernity, right? So this is this wonderful but scary time we're all in where, um, you know, the roadmap for the future kind of goes right into the fog. There's no no script. We don't know where we're going. There's no script. Um, That's called modernity? In in the territory, that's what I call it, the modern world. I have never heard that word in my life. Okay, tell me more about that. I'm fascinated by that. Well, this is where, you know, we are navigating ways society has never been. Like we've never had a wealth divide the way we have now. I can't speak for Canada, but in the U.S. I heard something uh, the other summer, which really sometimes, you know, kind of a statistic will really bring it home for you. Yeah. And I knew there was a wealth divide. There always has been in society, right? Haves and have nots. But I heard uh, a statistic that was quite compelling that the 50 wealthiest individuals in the U.S., had as much money as the 150 million poorest. No. And I, can, I can barely imagine that. I can't either. Good God. So that's an issue. And then we talked about social media being used in this way that um, literally divides us from our authentic self, right? You, yeah. You know, you, you post pictures, you know, in young women, it's often hypersexualization. In men, it's risk-taking, young bull, you know, kind of, you know, running on top of subway cars. It's like, because we want to be viewed as daring or sexy. And so we pursue that, but that's not who we truly are inside. So there's yes. a, a growing gap between our digital avatar persona and who we really believe we are. Right. And that's a form of loneliness too. 
Oh gosh, I love that so much because you know the comparison uh, that is so readily available for everybody. And you know, I say this as a parent as well. I mean, our our kids uh, grew up with this, and in some ways had have maybe, and I'd love your take on this, more of a script around that place than even those of us, you know, our first, this first generation of parents where we're parenting kids who, who are much more comfortable with the communication tools and can know so much more about how to stay connected to each other with very little prefrontal cortexes. And there's, there, we're, we're in this ignorant state of like, I, I just don't know. And yeah. You know, I, I see that as sort of that added disconnect because we don't even know how to communicate with the kids yeah. these days. And some of us, you know, the older we get, which I, we don't know how, you know, I don't want to push a wrong button. I don't know how to handle it. So, you know, I think it further <laughs> perpetuates that. Is, is that. Do you find that as well? Well, I, I think the technology is intimidating for some people, but even if it's not intimidating, the technology itself is designed to be a little bit um isolating, you know? So one of the giveaways to this is a lot of the uh, senior executives of the tech firms in Silicon Valley wouldn't let their kids use use smartphones because they knew that it had been designed very specifically to hijack the reward center, the dopamine reward circuit for the brain, you know, and keep you on those screens, right? Because if you're on those screens, that's uh, money's being made. Yeah. You're buying, you're selling, you're doing all the things they want you to do. Yeah. Gosh. And so if, would you say now, what is, what is the thing moving forward? Uh, and I know I, I cannot wait for our listeners to get your book. Where do we go from here? So I think it's both an individual growth opportunity, but also society has to make it easier for each of us to do what we need to do to be unlonely. Okay. So the title of the book is Project on Lonely Healing Our Crisis of Disconnection. And I do use examples from our Project on Lonely work in order to explain how it's worked. You know, some of our programs, you know, the the power of mindfulness plus creative making plus social learning. Yep. That That is what we do in our programs. But the goal of the book is to invite people to design their own Project on Lonely, their own personal Project on Lonely. And it's not a how-to book because you can't write a how-to. It's like a how-to book about how to have a, a happy life, right? You know, they're principles, though. Yeah. And so I, I outlined some of those principles. We've talked about some of them here. If you're lonely, it's not your fault. That, you know, yeah. that the, you know, the the arts can help you uh, and, and kind of uh, kind of supply your brain with some of what you need. But you still have to take risks in order to disclose and connect. So there's nothing surprising. But... It is an opportunity for each of us. And we also have to ask some of our major institutions to become more, to foster a culture of connection where it becomes encouraged and rewarded to be connected, to tolerate the discomfort of disclosure. You're allowed to be authentic. And I make the point that they shouldn't be doing it for charity reasons that will actually help their organizations grow and flourish. Yes. And so um, so I think it's, yes, we have to work as individuals, but health systems, employers, and higher education have a huge opportunity to rebuild themselves around connecting principles and not only uh, better serve the people, their communities who take advantage of what they have to offer, but actually become more sustainable uh, and flourish as organizations. I, as, and I, I think that's the right future for them. 
as organizations, and I think that's so true. I mean, w- w- when I get to speak to to corporate places, and I do that quite a bit, the question is, you know, how do we get more productivity? How do we decrease burnout? How do we um, increase empathy among our staff? I mean, people are leaving. We got a mental health problem. Nobody's committed. And I say, you know, so many of the times when people are acknowledged, they rise. And so how do we provide opportunities to get your employees to be most productive? You get them. I mean, this is my opinion. You get them back in the office. And you set rules and parameters and limits and all these invitations to, you know, not have kids on their cell phones during the school day. It just doesn't happen in this particular institution because some of this, in in my mind, has to be done on purpose. And I think about this even as a, as an individual, right? Do I, am I a better mom, a psychologist, a, a wife, a whatever, however I show up in my community, if I do things like not... Uh, engaging in my phone before I get to work in the morning? Do I have breakfast yep. with my children? Do I make it a point of, you know, going for dinner with my friends and everybody leaves their phones in the car? Are these some of those decisions that we now have to make with respect to, do we want to be healthier? Do we want to be happier? Do we want to be more creative and productive? Do we do those things on purpose? Well, I think that that is the opportunity we all have. I think we can have a, a, um, connected design strategy, both okay. at the individual and the community level. And, and I think okay. there's a growing understanding of how we would all benefit if we had that. There's momentum in that direction. I hope my book is a catalyst for that. Mm-hmm. And I think the arts are an underappreciated aspect of that because for years it was like entertainment and distraction, but it's actually a fundamental force that's guided the guided civilization since the history of since the the history of history since, the history of history yeah. and i mean that that the, the therapeutic value and i mean people kind of get scared when we start to talk about those things but i really love that idea that if you really want to be healthier and engage in these things do some things that are fun joy tends to be the most vulnerable emotion on the planet yeah. and when we do those things uh, creative expressions then we get back to the best parts of ourselves Absolutely. And, you know, uh, creative activity is playful, right? And just watching, you know, uh, we did some work. There was a major hurricane in the New York area, Hurricane Sandy. It was, I think, 2012. Yep. And so we were able to, and so there was a, there was a, a temporary shelter built for families that had nowhere to go and their homes were flooded and so on. So this was in Queens and, and we, uh, we got some very generous uh, donations of art supplies. We had 14 art therapists staff this shelter. We kept it going for six weeks. And it, it, you know, the, the force that was bringing these kids into making art and having a great time, it was, it was stronger than the hurricane. Oh, I love that. Stronger than the hurricane. And I'll tell you, I mean, when we look around the world today, we're going to need some forces stronger than a hurricane to, to help, uh, you know, kids and families survive, I think, in even some of the worst times. And I think, I, I love everything about what you're doing. I love the Project Unlonely. Um, everybody in this community, I want you to take a look at this book. We'll put everything in the show notes. Uh, know, Dr. Nobel, Nobel, that I'm going to be following you uh, just every step of the way because I'm just, I'm so honored that you would sit with me in this community today. Um, where, where can people find you? Well, you can go, go online. And it's uh, www.artandhealing.org. Our initiative is Project Unlonely. Come to our website. We have ways to educate and inform, just starting with some fun exercises you can do, films you can watch, and that 
that unpack, you know, loneliness and have conversations with people you care about after watching those films and be, you know, be invited to um, be curious, make things, have conversations, be connected. Ah, thank you. I am so inspired by this conversation and I know this community is just going to fall in love with you too. So thank you for joining us today and to the rest of you. I can't wait to see you again next week, but in the meantime, look after each other and um, thanks for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you, Jody. I'm a registered clinical psychologist here in beautiful Alberta, Canada. The content created and produced in this show is not intended as specific therapeutic advice. The intention of this podcast is to provide information, resources, some education, and hopefully a little hope. The Everyone Comes From Somewhere podcast by me, Dr. Jody Carrington, is produced by Brian Seaver, Taylor McGilvery, and the amazing Jeremy Saunders at Snack Labs. Our executive producer is the one and only, my Marty Pillar. Our marketing strategist is Caitlin Benito. And our PR big shooters are Des Vano and Barry Cohen. Our agent, the 007 guy, is Jeff Lonis from the Talent Bureau. And my emotional support during the taping of these credits uh, was and is and will always be my son, Asher. Grant. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.